Amen. Good morning. It's good to be uh, good to be here today. Good to be the church together. I'm excited for our passage. Uh, the band read it through uh, throughout those songs. There, we're, we're taking on all of chapter 17, um, Jesus' prayer. Um, I don't know if you've if you've had the opportunity to be uh, around someone that has mastered their craft or, uh, or, or their field of expertise, if you've gotten to uh, ask them questions or even just hear them share. I've had, I've had a couple opportunities in life where I got to be in a room with someone that was uh, just truly excellent at, at what they do. Um, and, and it's, if you've had that opportunity, you know what I'm talking about. It is, I, there's so much insight. They give you a window into how they think about scenarios, how they approach what they do. Um, maybe they give some, some little tricks that, that you'd never thought about that are, are so obvious once they say them. Um, but but it's, it is so beneficial to have an experience like that. In chapter 17, we get Jesus' prayer and obviously, uh, oftentimes we call this the high priestly prayer. My guess is if, if you have your Bible, it says the high priestly prayer there. Um, some people have said that this should actually be called the Lord's Prayer. And, and what we call the Lord's Prayer, the, our Father who art in heaven, that should be called the believer's prayer. But, but here we have Jesus' prayer for, for his people, uh, for disciples uh, of, of all times. Um, we get insight, we get this window. John gives us a window into what Jesus prays right before he dies, right before he's, he's arrested, put on trial, and crucified. And, and we don't know how many times he prayed. I'm, I'm sure that he was praying throughout his time before his crucifixion. But, but we get a window into this prayer through John 17. And uh, this ends the farewell discourse, which, which is made up of chapters 14 through 17 just before his crucifixion. I didn't want to split this, this prayer up into multiple sermons. We certainly could. Um, w- w- I might not talk about a verse today that you're like, oh, I love that part, and I'm so sorry for that. Like, I'm not going to talk about the joy that Jesus talks about in here. And you might go crazy, like, what? How do you? I was trying to pull hair, and I realized my hair is too short. Um, uh, we're going to zoom in on a few things here. But I'd encourage you this week, live in this passage. Just sit in John 17. It, it, it is awesome. It, it is really incredible. Our, our true statement for today is this. The Father is setting apart, and setting apart, consecrating. The passage uses the word consecrate and sanctify. He's setting apart Jesus sent ones in the truth for God's glory that they may share in the unity of the Father and Son so that the world may believe he sent Jesus. The Father's setting apart Jesus' sent ones in truth so that he'll be glorified, and that they may share in the unity of the Father and the Son so that the world may believe he sent Jesus. So let's start off with God's glory. Jesus requests that he be glorified, that he and the Father be glorified. Verse 1, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. And now to a Christian, it's probably no surprise that Jesus prays that he would be glorified. However, I do understand if you aren't a Christian, 
this might seem strange to you. It might seem egotistical. If any person, no matter how great they are, asked to be glorified, we would think they're really bizarre, that they're really self-centered, that they're arrogant, that they're pompous. Now, all of us want glory on some level, but hopefully you don't ask for it, right? Hopefully you, you never verbalize that. If you do, you should stop. Um, it comes off as selfish and self-seeking, but Jesus, his request for glory, though it might rub you the wrong way, this is Jesus we're talking about, and he's, he's worthy of glory. It is right that he be glorified. We sang that song earlier. I think it's called the Glorify Your Name. And uh, at least the bridge of that song comes from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2. He, he writes that, that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Right? He, the prophet could envision this day. When, the, when God would be so glorified, there'd be like, like the oceans all, all over the earth. And, and that's how it should be. If you're a Christian, my guess is when we sing that song, when you hear that, there's, there's this amen. Because right now, I look around the world, and it, it just doesn't look like there's much glory being given to God. And we live in a place that is fairly unchurched. It's pretty anti-Jesus in the Northwest, even the West Coast. So we're not too used to the idea of God being glorified all over the place. And, and I hear what Habakkuk wrote, and I, I just say, amen, this is how it should be. This is what God deserves. He deserves to be glorified. Jesus is not like any other man. He is fully deserving of glory. Jesus is worthy, so he isn't egotistical in asking that he be glorified. And, and even in asking to be glorified, he then goes on to say in verse 1, that the Son may glorify you, that the Son would glorify the Father as he is glorified, which is exactly what will happen on the cross. The Father and the Son will be glorified. D.A. Carson recalls Exodus 33, when Moses, talking with God, and he requests, show me your glory. And God responds, his first words are, uh, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Moses asks, to see God's glory, and God says, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass right before your eyes. And D.A. Carson says, on the cross, God's goodness passed before our eyes. His, his goodness, his glory was laid before us so that we can see it. We see his glory displayed so clearly through the death and the resurrection. So when Jesus prays for the Father and the Son to be glorified, it is really, really good for us too. It's not, that he, it's not just that he is worthy of being glorified. If you're a believer in Christ, you're the benefactor of Jesus' request here. A simple definition that we've used multiple times uh, for glory in the Gospel of John is that God would be rightly seen. Jesus wants people to rightly see him so that they can rightly see the Father. We've said over and over again that Jesus is the very self-disclosure of God. He's making God known. So when he asks to be glorified, this is good. This is good and right that God be seen correctly. We need to see God rightly. It's dangerous when we don't see God rightly, when we don't know who he is. If we don't see and understand who God is, we will miss him. We will miss knowing him. Jesus says he's been given authority to give eternal life, and he tells us in verse 3 what that life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that you know, or sorry, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we need God to be glorified. We need Jesus to be glorified so that he could glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit shows us God. He glorifies Jesus so that we can know who God is. Because knowing God is eternal life. This is one time when ignorance is not bliss. I was on a missions trip in Mexico about 15 years ago um, with a youth group. There were, it was a big group. I think there were about 60 of us. We drove down to Mexico, which took a long, long time. It was very smelly in those vans and, and that bus. We drove all the way down to Mexico. We were in country, I think, for just under two weeks. And we uh, were working really, really hard. We worked the kids, the staff, really hard. Because of that, because we were working so hard, we stayed in a hotel. And you might judge us right there and say, what are you doing? You need to rough it. Well, we wanted to be able to give. So we, we figured they were pouring out all day. Let's, let's give them a place that's decent to stay in that will replenish them. One of the perks of this hotel was it had a pool. Um, the pool really wasn't much bigger than the main part of the stage, right? So we, were, we weren't roughing it, but it was small for 60 people. Uh, day one, after working, pretty much all of us got in that pool. Like, it was, it, it was not your typical pool experience. Um, and there were so many of us in that pool, and, and most of the people didn't shower beforehand, rinse off, right? So they're pretty sweaty and gross. We pretty much shut down the pool for a couple of days. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't good. All the chemicals were off balance. We probably messed up a lot of stuff. Um, well, a couple of the high school boys, uh, I think like day two into not having a pool, said, hey, Greg, we, we want to show you something. Put on your swim shorts and a towel and follow us. And these guys were just little adventurers. And we're like weaving through these neighborhoods in Mexico. And I'm like, what are we doing? Am I, I'm in charge. I'd be doing this. <laughs> and, um, and we come to this gate, and the gate uh, did a good job. I could not tell what was in there. I had no idea what, what we were going to walk into. And, and we push open the gate. Two giant pools. They're incredible. And cabanas and, like, pool furniture to lounge on. Like, it was unbelievable. Well, these two guys in our youth group somehow found out from one of the workers that the hotel had another, like, pool, like pools that we could use as guests, but they didn't tell us that. I don't know if it was lost in translation. I don't know what happened, but they didn't, they didn't tell us. I'm like, this is great. We got to tell everybody. And the guy's like, no, we can't. We can't. Like, what do you mean? Like, they, they don't even have a pool. And when we get that pool back, it's this big. It's terrible. And, and they're arguing with me. And one of the kids goes, Greg, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> no, it's not, man. This would be terrible for them to not know about this pool. So I won. Like we told everyone, it was awesome. We had so much fun. It was replenishing for us every evening to play in those pools. Jesus understands ignorance is not bliss. He, he knows that we need to know God, not just know about him, but eternal life is, is knowing him. The passage will go on to talk about this union that we have with Christ in, in, in knowing God. So when Jesus asks that, that God be glorified, that he be glorified, it is to our benefit. I wonder, do you long for Jesus to be glorified? Does your life demonstrate that you want 
him to be glorified? Does your calendar reflect that you long for Jesus to be glorified? Do your spending habits point to your desire for Jesus to be glorified? Do your relationships show that you want Jesus to be glorified? Do you actually spend time, do you have meaningful relationships with people that don't know Jesus? Does your prayer time ask for God to be glorified? Are you seeking that? Are you longing for that? In verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knows he's so close to going home. He's so close to being back with the Father, to being clothed with the splendor that he shared with the Father before the incarnation. Jesus was close to to full glory. Jesus prays that he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified, so that he could give eternal life to those who would believe in him. Then Jesus prays for those the Father has given in verses 6 through 19, or, or, he's praying for believers, really, of, of all times here. Verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's clear to Jesus that those, the Father, that those who believe are the ones the Father has given him. And Jesus says he's manifested himself to them, and they've responded by keeping his word. They keep his word by believing the message of Jesus. So they've, they've heard what Jesus has said. They've, they've heard Jesus teach, and they've responded by faith. John, in his gospel, he splits people into two camps. You're either of the world, meaning you don't trust in Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus, you're, really you're in rebellion against Jesus, and, and those who do believe in Jesus, those who have trusted him as their Savior from sin. Verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. So Jesus is praying for those who have trusted in Jesus. Not for everyone, not for the world that doesn't believe, but for those who do. And he explains why. He says, for they are yours. Jesus prays for them because they are the Father's. These are the Father's adopted children. They now belong to his family Jesus will go on to say that he's guarded them. He hasn't lost any except for Judas, who who he was supposed to lose because he was the one that would betray Jesus. And it might feel strange to us that Jesus would pray in a way that excludes, but at the same time, of course, he would pray for those whom the Father had given to him. And and we know, John 3.16, we know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, In a few verses here in this prayer, we'll see that Jesus prays for those who have not trusted yet. He he knows that there are those who who are still of the world that that will turn from the world and turn to Jesus. They'll come to believe. They'll abandon the world and they'll join others who have abandoned the world to trust in Christ. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus knows that there will be more who will respond to him in faith. We know that from the time the Holy Spirit came and empowered believers, believers would proclaim the gospel and that there would be some that would turn, that would go from being of the world to being of Jesus. They would trust in Jesus. And and this is very good news. 
This is good news that, that people would come to trust in Jesus. A side note, Christians, we should have confidence that some will, will respond to Jesus when we share about him. And we might face rejection after rejection after rejection uh, with the gospel, but there will be some that respond. Jesus has confidence in this, that there are some that will come to believe in him by our sharing. Um, I love fishing. I've talked about it several times from the pulpit, maybe more than I'm supposed to. Randall's smiling at me right now. Um, for the last year, I've been quasi-obsessed with steelhead. Um, I hooked into a steelhead about 12 years ago. It was an exhilarating experience. I was fly fishing for trout on the Deschutes. I'm just going, and then all of a sudden, the tip of my rod, I'm not making this up, hits the water. Just bam, this giant steelhead. Nailed it. I'm fishing on a little trout rod. I get so excited. I break them off, never see the thing. It's terrible. But I've had that feeling ever since. And I'm, not, I'm not being funny right now. I mean, it is funny, but I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I want to catch a steelhead so bad. So I've been fishing on the Washougal like crazy, right? I'm not kidding. Like 30, 40 times in the last 365 days. And sometimes for 40 minutes. Like, I'm not out there all day, usually. Um, I want one so bad. I'm watching YouTube videos. Um, on steelhead. My, my kids and my wife, they just laugh at me. Like, I've got my earbuds in, like, what are you doing? I'm watching a YouTube video on steelhead. And they just start laughing at me, right? Like, I, I, got, I went to a seminar a couple weeks ago on catching steelhead. <laughs> I, uh, I soak my bait in this stuff that makes my hands smell so nasty, right? Like, I just, I want one so bad. So the question that you may wonder is, Greg, have you ever caught one? No, I've not. I've been skunked over and over and over again. I don't know what the Lord is trying to teach me, but I'm hoping someday he teaches me to catch steelhead. Um, there's, there's no guarantee that I'll ever stink and catch one. And I, I, there's no guarantee I ever will. No matter how much I try, I might just stink at fishing. I don't know. Uh, Jesus prayed for the success of his people sharing the gospel. He, he, he prayed that, that the Father would give us success. He, he, he knows that there will be people that respond when you share the gospel. You might get skunked over and over and over again, but keep looking for conversations. Keep fishing, so to speak. Keep casting out there because some will respond to the good news of the gospel. Jesus prayed for our success in this. Jesus also prayed for security. As I mentioned before, Jesus said he's, he's guarded everyone that the Father has given him. And he points out the world hates his followers. The world absolutely hates them. Last week's passage ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, in this world, you will face tribulation. It will be really, really hard. Life is going to be hard. And then he said, but I've overcome the world. We zoom in to verse 15 here. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't pray that, that we'd get saved and then God would take us out of here. He prays that, that we'd be kept from the evil one, that we'd be protected from the devil who, who rules over this world. And Je until Jesus comes back and, and judges him, Satan, he's got some power here. And there are all kinds of sneaky traps that the devil has for us. He would love 
to distract you from your life in Jesus. He loves to get Christians to entertain old sinful habits. He enjoys trapping us in guilt and shame from our past. Nothing would make him happier than to lull believers into apathy. He loves it when when Christians are living in the world but have little heart for the lost. He enjoys it when we're so wrapped up in our own world and, and maybe really, really, really good things, things that matter. But we're so wrapped up that we're distracted from the Great Commission. And there are all kinds of schemes that we need to be aware of from the evil one. But we aren't to hide. We need to conform to be like Christ. right? We need to conform to what Scripture gives us. We're not to conform to the patterns of this world, but we aren't supposed to hide from this world. And there's a fine line, I think, between being in, in living in the world but not of the world. What's dangerous is when we just try and hide from the world, or maybe we don't even try. But God has you in the world for a reason. He hasn't let you leave yet. He has work for you to do. In verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I loved my time in Bible college. I went to uh, Multnomah, uh, what used to be Multnomah Bible College. It's now a university. Um, it, I, it was an incredible time of growing in Jesus for me, in my love for the Word, and my understanding of theology and doctrine. I was blessed with incredible professors and staff members that they just poured into me. Um, I got to do youth ministry at my church at the same time. I was the intern with the middle school group. So I had, I had ministry experience along with my school experience going hand in hand to, to help grow me, uh, to help prepare me for, uh, for life. The, the regret that I have is that I was almost exclusively with Christians. And it didn't happen on purpose. Like, I didn't mean to do that. Obviously, at Bible college, almost everyone's a Christian. I mean, there are a few people that, like, the parents made them go there, and they, they didn't want to have anything at the time to do with Jesus. But almost everyone I was around all day at school was a Christian. My job at church, like I said, or my job was working at a church, right? So I was primarily with, with Christians. I mean, the, the people I worked with on staff were Christians. Um, my friends outside of school friends were college group friends from my church. The only... The only people that I was around that didn't know Jesus were a few middle schoolers that came to our youth group that hadn't trusted in Jesus yet. So I went from being with people um, who didn't know Jesus all the time in high school to, to going to Bible college, and suddenly I was surrounded by Christians all the time. When I was in high school, I was on the prowl for opportunities to talk with people about Christ. In high school, um, I mean, God was just working in me, and I was, I was so excited about Jesus. I developed skills in getting in conversations. I mean, I made plenty of mistakes, but, uh, but I got better and better at listening to people and asking questions about what people believed, and, and there's uh, just like these repetitions, like, like, like working out a muscle in, in these gospel conversations that I had in high school. And then I got to Bible college, and without recognizing it, I just wasn't regularly interacting with people who didn't know Jesus. And the result was that my, my abilities, my skills, even my courage to share Christ really atrophied. I, I had tons of knowledge that was truly transformative, but I wasn't getting the reps of talking about Jesus with people who didn't yet believe in Jesus. I wasn't trying to hide from the world at all, but I ended up in this pretty exclusive Jesus bubble. 
And Jesus prays for protection for us in the world, but not that we would leave the world. He says we're, we're sent ones. Do you see yourself as a sent one? The Father sent Jesus, and he sent you. Jesus was on a very clear mission. Is your mission clear? When we think of missionaries, my guess is we can all pretty much come up with their job description. Even if you don't know who our missionaries are at Harvest, you'd say something like, to clearly present the gospel so people can hear and respond to Jesus in faith. That's what we think missionaries should do. Our job's the same. Do you view yourself as a sent one like Jesus? Have your gospel-sharing muscles atrophied? Have they ever developed? Are you getting those reps in? Because we've been set apart. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays that his followers would be sanctified. The word here means to make holy. So let's talk holiness for a second. When we say that God is holy, we mean that he is distinct. We mean that he's different. He's transcendent. He's separate from creation. He's, he's altogether other. And so we think about uh, people and, and things in the Old Testament are, are called holy. People like the high priest. We know the high priest is holy. Aaron and his sons, it said that they were sanctified. They were set apart. Right? They, were, they, were, they were set apart for God's purposes they were exclusively to be used for God's purposes. Even utensils, like in the temple, were holy. And it's not because they were moral. They didn't decide to, to honor God. They were, they were set apart for a specific purpose, for a specific use in the temple. Believers were sanctified, were set apart. Jesus was set apart and sent in the world, and so are we. We're specifically set apart for God. We're reserved for his purposes. A few years ago, I, uh, I was on a short kick of making bread. I got really into it. Um, and uh, I, I got this one recipe that I really enjoyed. I made bread from scratch. My kids loved it. Um, and then I realized how bad all those carbs were for me all the time. So I kind of stopped making as much bread. But, but I made bread, and I'd get frustrated because as I'd mix the dough, I'd use a wooden spoon. And not only would it just get so sticky, but the, the dough was really, really thick. It was really hard. Uh, it was just really hard work. Um, uh, and then I read about this tool. I don't know if anyone's ever seen one of these before. I stumbled upon it because of this bread recipe, and the person that wrote uh, this recipe just raved about this little thing. So I found it on Amazon for like 10 or 12 bucks. Um, it's called a, a Danish dough whisk, and I, I'm afraid to try and pronounce the Danish word for it because I feel like it sounds like I'm swearing, so I won't do that. Um, but this thing is, I'm not kidding, it is incredible how good it is at what it's made for. Like, like with a wooden spoon, the dough just gets stuck and it's a pain and, and it's already hard to mix because it's so dense. This thing just breezes right through it. Like a kid could easily mix thick, thick bread dough with this thing. And, and it's so dorky that I'm so into it. But this, this tool truly is amazing. It only comes out of my little kitchen tool drawer when I'm going to make bread. That's the only time I'm, I use this. It is, it is totally set apart for that purpose. And, and when we read about Jesus being set apart, we're like, yeah, we get that. Of course Jesus was set apart. Of course Jesus had a very specific purpose. Why do we think as his followers we'd be any different? We're set apart. 
We're set apart for Jesus. We're set apart to tell this world about Christ. We're set apart to bring the Father and the Son glory. Jesus says we've been sanctified in the truth. God does this through his word. God immerses the believer in the revelation of himself, of his Son. When we respond to the message of the word, we're sanctified by it. We're sanctified positionally. When we come to put our faith in Jesus, we're then, we're sanctified, we're, we're set apart. When we believe the message of the gospel, we're sanctified by his word. And then there's also this sense that, that there, there's sanctification, the process of God making us more and more like his son in Jesus. We're set apart as we live in step with or in conformity with the truth. God's word is to shape how the, how the believer thinks and lives it's crucial that we know God's word. When God saves you, there, there are certain things that change instantly for sure. And, and, and some of those things might be different for, for us. But there are also things, desires, tastes that we still have that God gradually changes more and more. And the Holy Spirit, he's, he's doing that sanctification as we come to his word, making you more and more into the image of Christ. Reading the word is imperative for every Christian. It's so important. It's why we invite you to do this Bible read-through for us. Not that Bible read-through is the only way to go for it. Not that you even have to do it in the one-year format. Like, I talked to some people last year, like, man, I'm actually, I just need to go slower because I need more time in this. Like, I can't zoom through it. I'd encourage you, join us in the Bible read-through. I don't care the pace you go, but start reading God's Word daily. We, we need it. You will, not, you will not survive if you just come to church and, and feast on some of God's word on Sundays and then fast the rest of the week. You will wither. We need God's word. God, God uses his word to sanctify us, to set us apart. Verse 21, Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved them. There's a unity, there's a oneness that Jesus prays here. He, he asks that, that we would be one, that believers of all times, not just the disciples, but believers of all times would, would be united, that we would be one with one another, that we would be one with, with God. I mentioned already in verse 20, he's not just praying for the disciples, but he's praying for future believers, right? He's pray, he was praying for, for us. He's praying for others who will come to know Christ. Just as the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, we're to be in this union with the Trinity as well. And the result in, in verse 21, he says that, that the world may believe you sent me. Right? There's a, the result of our oneness is that the world will believe that you sent me. He says nearly the same thing in verse 23, that the world may know you sent me. So our oneness with God and with one another reveals to the world that Jesus truly was sent by God. He was not a liar. Jesus tells us that the world hates him. The world hates his followers. When he was here, they hated him so badly they crucified him. Our union points to Jesus truly being sent by God. 
for the world. Somehow our, our union, in a sense, vindicates Jesus, what he said, that it's true, that he truly was sent. And we aren't making this up. The Father did send him, and he prays that our unity with him and with each other will point to that. So we, we have this spiritual oneness with God. Jesus says in verse 26, I in them, right, which I take to be the Holy Spirit in us, the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus sent after he left, that, that Jesus is in us through the Holy Spirit. We talked earlier about the truth sanctifying us. Our, our need for the word is, is so great. It conforms us into Christ's likeness. The Spirit uses the word to transform us. The, the more we're with Jesus, and, and think back to like vine and the branches languages from a couple chapters ago, the more we're with Jesus, the more we're like him. The more we think like Jesus, the more we, we respond like Jesus, the more we want what Jesus wants, the more we hunger for Jesus to be known, for him to be glorified. So this union is incredible. This union is anchored in, in God's love. Multiple times, Jesus said the Father loves us with the love that he has for the Son. And that, that, that love is in us as believers. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. So what if, what if you aren't following Jesus? You're here today and you don't believe. Or maybe your belief is, is shallow uh, it, it's belief that y y you think maybe Jesus is for real, but it's not a belief that has changed your life. It, it doesn't change how you live. Well, in this prayer just before the cross, he prays for those who are in the world that, that will respond to faith in Jesus, to come to know and believe that God sent his son to offer you salvation by dying on the cross, the death that you and I deserve to die. And he did this because of love. He did this out of love for the Father to see him glorified, he did this out of love for you so that his love could be in you, that you could see his glory, that you would have eternal life, with, which he told us in verse 3. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus whom God sent. So if you aren't following Jesus, man, turn to him today. Be made clean of your sin. Verse 26, the prayer ends like this. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This prayer is so beautiful. It is so rich and deep. I encourage you this week, just spend time in John 17. Don't be in a rush. Uh, meditate on, on this prayer that Jesus has for us. Let's pray right now. Jesus, your love for us is absolutely mind-boggling. Why you would love us at all, I'll never understand. But Jesus, I'm so grateful as a recipient of your love. Lord, I'm so grateful for this prayer to see the, the things that you prayed for us with the cross right before you. Jesus, I, I pray that we would be a part of glorifying you that we would, would live lives with this laser-like focus that would, would just desire for you to be made known all over this earth. Lord, would you help us to see ourselves as sent, uh, as sent ones, people that are set apart, 
They're sanctified. They're consecrated for your work. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that we would recognize where we're distracted in life, where we're distracted from what you have, from what you're calling us to do in being your people, in spreading the gospel all over this planet. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to follow you, Jesus? Would we glorify your name in what we do? It's in your name we pray. Amen.